Welcome to the comics course. As always, I am your Professor Hamby. As you might be able to tell, I am still somewhat under the weather. I am here without my T.A. Rowan, uh, because she is even worse off than I am. Rather than continue to do Sandman, which would leave her out, I have decided to do a series of short episodes this week discussing some topics that would not normally fit in our regular routine. I'm going to talk today about a challenge, and I'm talking to the adults who work with children in various capacities. I am talking to parents, educators, librarians, but also the aunts, uncles, daycare workers, and many other types of people that work with youth while they are developing. I frequently hear comics given a sort of token support with the tone of, well, at least they are reading something. And the implication is made clear. Comics aren't real reading. And when adults have this attitude, it affects the spawnlings in their care. So we need to examine the impact and validity of this attitude. The impact is simple. It encourages a shared belief, as children often mimic the attitudes of the adults around them. And so the children end up feeling that comics aren't real and something to be discarded once they pass a certain developmental stage. Now, as we look at this attitude, I need adults to accept something up front. They have a bias. Now, a bias is a loaded term for a lot of people, but you have to understand that biases are actually a useful form of generalizing. We don't have time to research every fact in our lives, every moment of the day. But at the same time, we need the ability to question our biases. It is crucial. To use an extreme example, I have a bias that causes me to assume that gravity is still functioning on me. Now, yes, I have the experience that I'm not floating up into space, but it could be for another reason. This is, my belief that gravity is still affecting me, a reasonable bias, a reasonable assumption. If I attempted to reconfirm basic physics on a constant basis, I'm not going to get anything done. So let's just get that out of the way. I'm not slagging people for having biases, and biases should not be a trigger term. But let's look at more specifics of this bias against comics as literature. Let's look first at an attribution bias. I'm going to use an example. I go to a store, and I have a good experience shopping there because of a cashier. Let's say it's Target. For those who don't have Targets, they're stores that offer a variety of goods. Some of them have groceries. All of them have clothes and household goods, things like that. I could now have a bias that this Target store is friendly. And maybe it is. Maybe the store's management encourages friendly cashiers. But in fact, all I actually know is that that cashier on that day was friendly. It's an easily false bias. And so I need to temper that bias with how reasonable it is. If I go back repeatedly and continue to have good experiences with many different cashiers, I have better data and I can better generalize that bias. It may soon become a reasonable bias, and I choose to go to that store more often. 
This is a pretty easy thing to imagine us doing every day in our lives, right? Now, let us say that store is part of a chain, a whole bunch of targets. Do I transfer that bias to other stores in the chain? Do I do it to other stores that sell the same goods? This is an analogy where other stores in the same chain might be like other comic books published by the same company, whereas other stores that sell the same goods are all comics. This becomes increasingly irrational. It is reasonable to say, if I have many good experiences at a Target, that I'm likely to at other Targets because they share the same management. If I like a title of a comic book series, I might very well like others by that same publisher because they have a common attribute. But how valid is it for me to assume that I will enjoy shopping at Walmart because I enjoy shopping at Target? That is like saying all comic books will be like that one set I have observed. It is completely irrational. Let's take this further. Imagine you know one person who reads comics, and all they read is superhero comics. And then you assume that all comics are superhero comics. Well, you don't have to imagine. People do this routinely. And if they encounter contradictory information, they often employ an evasive form of confirmation bias and say, Well, that's an outlier. My existing assumption must be right. This is to thinking what fishing without bait is. You might accomplish something, but you're relying on extraordinary luck. If I had done that as a young man, I would have assumed that the only books that were published were either academic sociological texts or murder mysteries, because that was all I saw my parents read. And yet, Comic books do develop these biases on a very little data. You may say my thing about the only books being mysteries and social texts is ridiculous, but we do this with comics routinely. Now, people do this because adults base their information on two data points. What they read when they were younger and what they observe existing children reading. This is akin to assuming that James Joyce doesn't exist because R.L. Stein's Goosebumps and J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter cover the stylistic breadth of literature preteens are exposed to. Expecting young children to seek out and take up the best literature of their age bracket over entertainment, with or without pictures, is pure folly. And yet the opinions of the self-appointed erudite often rely on logic that uses that as its very foundation. This is worse than ignorance. It is discriminatory and avoids opportunities to expose art and literature to the young. If an adult wants to avoid learning and avoid the joy of diverse media, that is their choice. But denying it to children due to a lazy bias is morally bankrupt. Before we talk about content, though, let's talk about the bias a bit more and define things. Being mindful of this bias, I often use the term graphical literature to attempt to sidestep it. Will Eisner used the term sequential art. The Japanese, of course, call these works manga. Indians, chitrakatha. I'm probably mispronouncing that. Koreans call it manhwa. Uh, a meth head in San Francisco with a PhD in fine art comes up with some other name for it. Who cares? Well, these are not useful semiotics. It's easy for people to visualize what a comic is, so we don't need those terms. And almost invariably when you do, you imagine something fantastical, such as a superhero story. But that itself shows the problem. You need to separate the form from the content. When you visualize this, and when people do it so consistently, it shows a clear cultural bias. This is a form of a prejudicial bias where you allow past experiences or even secondhand information to 
inform you. To some degree, this is reasonable. A lot of comics in Western fields are superhero comics. Experiences are further reinforced by the prevalence of superhero movies that push gaudy characters in your face. However, it is a bias, and you are missing the definition by filling in your viewpoint. To quote Scott McCloud, you are confusing the message with the messenger. The comic is a medium, and what is conveyed varies from creator to creator. And by the way, I do recommend Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics. It's an excellent book. The entertainment complex bears some blame for all of this. When Superman or Iron Man has a movie, the phrase comic book movie is plastered everywhere for you to see and reinforce this bias. But when a stylistic tale of a Greek legend or a fantastical crime noir is done, you have to hunt for the mention of it having a graphic literary origin. Comics are books. Of course they're in demand by movies and television productions, as they often have existing content to help visualize, but fundamentally they are adapted for the same reason any work is, the story. Sometimes they're literature, sometimes they're escapist entertainment. Some even manage to be both, while others are just crap, just like any other books. I want to share with you some of the stuff in my current to-read pile for comics. One is called Misfit Club for Girls, a European comic about a group of preteens, girls bonding and finding a way to deal with their lives. A biography of Che Guevara, a book about the history of philosophy. I think it was created in France before translation. A manga about a young man trying to tutor five spoiled quintuplets so they don't fail their classes. And there's a romance plot. One that is on chocolate and chocolatiers. A sexy comic with furry-style anthropomorphic characters and a strange conspiracy. A near-future lesbian-maybe romance that's a commentary on the gig economy and heavy on satire. A horror manga about an overbearing mother controlling her son's life and the extremes that she goes to. A collection of Batman comics focusing on him as a detective archetype. Now, these are modern comics. Of course, the first comics weren't about any of these, and invariably somebody will say, well, when comics started. Well, when comics started, we don't know what they were about because they were paintings from Neolithic times. And even if we go forward, it's not much more illustrative. The first book published in a printed form was the Gutenberg Bible, I believe. That doesn't mean that all books are religious in nature. Now, the history of graphic literature is one of elitism until fairly recent times. Writing and art remained crafts and skills for the elite until the 19th century, when cultural change did to media what Ron Jeremy did to consent, run roughshod over it until sued and then locked up as mentally unwell while looking like a hedgehog. Newspapers changed everything. To understand what happened, you have to understand that people as a rule are basic. This is not an insult, it just simply reflects the fact that we are fundamentally creatures of flesh and animals. We want to eat grease, salt, and sugar, and we want it both in our food and our media. People want to watch 90 Days Fiancé and sports. Those rare ones of us that want to do things like reread Dubliners, even when we don't have a college class for it, we are the mutants and freaks. We are perverse, which I'm fine with. But the average person doesn't want to. They want comfort, and they want a good life. They don't want to have to work all the time. They want to be able to relax and not be grinded into dust by the machines of life. And that was as true in the 19th century as it is now. In the 19th century, we had an explosion of literacy and politics, and this intersection was the genesis of the newspaper. Satirical cartoons had already existed in woodprints, and now it left the realm 
of wood prints owned by the elite to media consumed by the masses. These first newspaper comics were black and white, but it did not take long for color to become common. As soon as newspapers realized that making people laugh sold as well as making them upset or disgusted, and they realized that they didn't need to rely on a fast topical turnaround, they could hire cartoonists to create things that would make people laugh. And as they told gags, it was inevitable they would want to, s to establish a setup before delivering a punchline, transitioning from single-panel cartoons to sequential art, using space instead of time as a third dimension for presentation. And then these began being collected into booklets. These were the first comic books. Then, inevitably, original material was used. And once these began coming out, it was inevitable people said, well, we already have, you know, the machinery set up. We've got the distribution. We've done everything to make these things. We could diversify content. Pulps are beginning to fade out. So why don't we start making comics that are true crime stories and adventure stories and all this kind of stuff? And then eventually, a new subgenre of adventure stories happened, the superhero. Now note that we readily discarded the idea of comics being funny books to adopt an adventure genre, superheroes. And that has now stuck with them for 80 years. Though honestly, only a small slice of total tiles, titles, even in the U.S., and barely represented in other regions of the world, are superheroes. But it has stuck because of those biases we discussed. Now, I know an argument some people want to give. The sales. Comic books are a huge amount of the sales. Well, superhero comics are a huge amount of the sales in the U.S., but not necessarily other markets, certainly not Japan, which has had a huge cultural impact. But let's talk about sales. The, as of my recording of this, the most recent Pulitzer Prize uh, for a book was awarded to the Ned and Nahus, an account of a minor and ultimately even negligible episode in the history of a very famous family by Joshua Cohen. It's described as a mordant, linguistically deft historical novel about the ambiguities of the Jewish-American experience presenting ideas and disputes as volatile as its tightly wound plot. Doing a little research, I found that it has sold about 40,000 copies. That's actually really good. I last year saw that one book that had won the, a major literary prize sold about 5,000 copies. So let's compare that to The Boys from Biloxi. This was released less than two months ago by John Grisham. I don't have absolute sales figures for it, but a quick check on one bookselling site, admittedly a big one, Amazon, showed over 50,000 reviews. That's just people who made an effort to review it. This is undoubtedly sold in the million-plus range already. And yet... Contemporary legal thrillers do not define all of prose for the same people who make the argument that sales define superheroes for comics. Comics are about telling stories. And if you want examples of how these stories can be powerful, not just diverse, but powerful, I'm going to give you three off the top of my head that are all radically different from each other. Barefoot Gin. It's the autobiographical tale of a child who survived the bombing of Hiroshima. 
It broke my heart. Gabrielle Ba's Day Tripper, which left my head spinning, questioning how death can retroactively shape life. And then, Transmetropolitan, a satire uh, with a character sort of cast in the vein of gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson that reminded me thematically of Pynchon's The Crying of Lot 49. That's three I'm giving you. But I'm going to give you a challenge. I said at the beginning I was going to give you a challenge, and I am. I know that I'm probably preaching to the choir here on this podcast lecture series. But if you know someone that claims that comic books are just for kids, that they are not literature, I challenge you to ask them for three works that they consider true literature. And then present back to them three works of graphic literature that follow the same themes and motifs and elements. And if you're having trouble, contact me. My info should be in the outro, but I'm available as prof.hamby on Twitter. Talk to me. Anyway, class dismissed. Okay, class is dismissed, but you are not. I have a quick info dump for you. If you want to listen to more of the podcast, we are available everywhere. We are on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, even on YouTube. Additionally, you can find me on social media, on Mastodon, Twitter, Tumblr, TikTok. I probably have a copy of the podcast on an iPod mini in a hobo's pocket in San Francisco. That's right, time travel. Do you want to know where you can find all these links? You can find them on my link tree. That is L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E forward slash Prof Hamby. P-R-O-F-H-A-M-B-Y. It is the comics course. And don't forget your homework.